0: Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Circumstances nobody could have ever foreseen. That's what we have to address on today's show. Novak Djokovic has been defaulted from his match, his third-round match at the U.S. Open against Pablo Carreño Busta for accidentally hitting a lineswoman with the tennis ball. Later in the show, I will uh, bring on Mike McIntyre, to discuss the success that the Canadians have had at the U.S. Open. Denis Shapovalov became the first Canadian man to reach the U.S. Open quarterfinal with his win over David Gafan, Vasek Pospisil, Felix Auger, Ali They're both still in it as well. So I will talk to Me- Me- uh, Mike McIntyre, who does a great job covering Canadian tennis, about uh, the tournament and the Canadians and their success. Then, after I'm done speaking with Mike... I will kind of revise my predictions for the tournament now that the overwhelming favorite and my pick to win the tournament, Novak Djokovic, is out. Before I get into the incident itself, I'm going to break down what happened. I'm going to break down the call that was made. I'm going to break down the rule that is in place. Um, First, let's just zoom out for a second. Novak Djokovic um, is going to pay a terrible price, a very steep price for the mistake that was made on the court. His pursuit of history, his pursuit of his 18th major title is gone. It has come to an end at, at the 2020 U.S. Open. And that's a pretty stiff penalty getting defaulted out of the tournament. It's a really stiff penalty. But there will be nothing more. Nothing else will come with this. And when something like this happens, it feels bigger than the world. As I was watching this, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It felt like the sky was falling. It felt like the roof was collapsing. I couldn't believe what I was watching. It was uncomfortable. It was kind of painful to watch. Um, And I think unless you have an extreme disdain for Novak Djokovic, you felt all those things. But people have short memories. We will forget about this. Not to say we won't recall it when similar instances happen in the future, because they will. It will not be erased from our memories. But this isn't going to seem like the biggest deal in the world in two years, in three years, when it's all said and done, when you zoom out. Think to the time where you got in really big trouble in your life, where you did something wrong and you were in trouble. It felt bigger than the world. It felt like you were never going to recover. Your life was over. You got over it. You forgot about it. You moved on. That time you were really embarrassed. You thought your reputation would never be the same. You thought your self-esteem would never recover. You forgot about it. You moved on. People have short memory. Big picture, Novak Djokovic has lost his chance to win the 2020 U.S. Open because of the mistake he made on the court. That is the penalty. Don't make it bigger than that. Don't. He lost a tennis match. He is out of the U.S. Open because of this penalty. Don't make it bigger than that. It's not bigger than that. The world will move on. He will move on. Um, So let's, let's leave it at that. Now to the, uh, the event itself, what transpired. What I'm going to communicate right now is a couple of events that happened before the incident, and they're directly tied to the incident. And if you have only read about this, if you have only seen a clip o- about it on YouTube or Instagram or Twitter, a lot of the things I'm about to say, you may have missed. And they're really, really important, really important because if what happened was a result of the lead up the events leading up to Djokovic accidentally striking the lineswoman with the tennis ball all right pcb's playing a good first set but novak gets triple set point on pablo's serve love 40 at 4-5 And PCB hits the back of the line at Love 40, wins the point. Djokovic hits the net cord at 1540. The ball almost trickles over to PCB's side, and it comes back down on Novak's side. 3040, brilliant point by Pablo Carrena Busta, drop shot winner. Um, And then Pablo Carrena Busta ends up holding. I believe it's the point after Deuce. Could have been after 30-40, but I believe it's the point after Deuce where a ball rolls up to Novak. And at this point, Novak is frustrated that he has lost his triple set point, opportunity to win the set. And he hits the ball against the side barrier. Opposite the chair umpire's side of the court, you have the photographer's pit. You You have a short barrier in front of the photographer's pit And Novak hit the ball against that barrier. James Blake, on the call for ESPN, noted, hey, whoa, Novak's got to be really confident to hit that ball like that because if he hit it any higher, it would have went in the photographer's pit. Whoa. No harm, no foul, though, because Novak hit his mark. Novak didn't misfire and he hit the barrier where clearly no one was. We move on. Now it's 5-6. Djokovic serving in the first set, trying to force a tie break. And he falls down early in that game. And he's in a neutral baseline rally. And he slips. He loses his footing. And to brace his fall, he extends his left arm and tries to catch himself with his left arm and jams his, his left shoulder. He's down. He's in pain. He... Uh, he gets the trainer to come out and look at it, gets a, a quick little treatment, and then goes back to continue. It was love 30 at this point. So a terrible time for Novak to, you know, get get dinged up. And he jammed his left shoulder, which by the way, the left shoulder is what knocked him out of the U.S. Open last year. So he jams his left shoulder. Um, then on the next point, he hits a couple of topspin backhands. But then at the end, he hits an ill-advised drop shot and loses the point. Then he serves and volleys. Wins the point, 15-40. Then Novak hits the serve, gets a backhand, and it immediately drop shots once again. Not good shot selection. That's two backhands in a row that he drop shots. And in between, he served volleyed. Get a hint. His shoulder is uh, either still in pain, still in discomfort, or he's just afraid to use it because of what happened. Hits another drop shot. PCP rushes up to the drop shot, passes Novak with an angle cross court for a winner. That is the break of serve. Novak takes the ball out of his left pocket, hits it behind him to the back wall, and it hits the lineswoman, in the throat. I'm gonna show you what happened now. On YouTube, it hits the lineswoman. The lineswoman doubles over, and you could audibly hear her kind of struggling to um, to really speak. Um, because if you've ever been hit in the throat, it's an uncomfortable feeling. It's a bit of a shock. Uh, Sometimes it feels like you can't breathe for a second. And I think that's what the lady was experiencing. Um, At this point, Novak, of course, right away is like, apologizes. He realizes the weight of what had happened. Any avid follower of tennis knows that when you strike a ball, a dead ball, a ball that is not in play, and you strike that ball intentionally, and you hit a ball person, an umpire, or a lines person, regardless of your intention, regardless of your malice, if that ball hits the person, you are in danger of being defaulted. This happened to Tim Henman when he hit a ball person running across the court. This happened to Dennis Shapovalov of Davis Cup when he took a ball out of his pocket, just like Novak, and... He tried to launch a ball into the crowd, which, by the way, lots of players do. And you don't get defaulted for that. You you, you don't. I, I've seen it happen many times. Nobody nobody gets defaulted. That's a warning for ball abuse. But if you hit someone with a dead ball and you intended to hit the ball, um, that is where you risk default. And I have actually never seen in this situation, I have never seen a player not be defaulted. Here's the statement from the U.S. Open. In accordance with the Grand Slam rulebook, following his actions of intentionally hitting a ball dangerously or recklessly within the court, or hitting a ball with negligent disregard of the consequences, the U.S. Open tournament referee defaulted Novak Djokovic from the 2020 U.S. Open. That's the important part of the statement. Uh, that was the decision that the tournament referee came to. I have yet to hear a player say that the wrong call was made because they know. They know that's what happens. Um, and I have yet to hear any, you know, I, I spoke with Joel Drucker. He's been, he's a tennis historian. He's seen incidents like this uh, time and time again. The result is always the same. If you think that Novak Djokovic was defaulted because of some kind of bias, you are biased if you think that because it must have been a really difficult decision for the tournament director to send the biggest draw outside of Serena Williams, the number one player in the world, someone chasing history. If you think it was easy to send that guy home packing, you've got another thing coming. That must have been a really difficult decision. Mike Cation, who calls matches on the challenger circuit. He weighed in and said, if this happened on the challenger circuit, this specific incident, it would take about five to 10 seconds before the chair umpire would announce the default. And instead, this was a a decision that they took their time with and they thought about it. And that's the decision that they came to. Um... This is not a decision that is normally anything other than black and white and straightforward. If you hit a ball and it strikes someone on the court and they are injured, it's a default. Ask David Nalbandian. Ask Dennis Shapovalov. Ask Tim Henman. Nalbandian didn't hit a ball. He kicked a barrier and the barrier hit the Lions judge. All of these players, all four of these players meant no harm. All four of these players are victims of losing control and they are victims of their own negligent actions, not malicious actions, negligent actions. There is not a debate to be had about the call that was made. There's just not. That's it. That's a default. You cannot, um, by, by the letter of the law, that is a default. There's no debate. Here is where there can be a debate. And I'll tell you what side of the debate I fall on. But first, let me just say this. You can debate this. You can debate if the rule should leave more room for interpretation. Maybe the standard is, maybe you think the standard is too low. Maybe you think the umpire should be allowed to look at a situation like that and the tournament referee to look at a situation like that and think, hmm, maybe only if the player does something intentionally with malice, should they be defaulted? Maybe that's your line of thinking. Maybe you think the standard is too low and they should raise the standard and they should allow a judgment call to be made. Look. Here's the problem with that. There's a couple of them. One, as soon as you leave something open to loose interpretation, you open it up to controversy and you open it up to biases which everyone has. Every why do you think why do you think the home team wins more than the away team in sports? Why do you think it's actually a, a lot of it is because the officials are biased? towards the home team because they hear the crowd react to the calls that they think should be made. They don't want to upset the the home crowd. That's why it's a big reason why the home team wins more than the away team. Everyone's bias. Okay. Subjectivity. That's what you get. And tennis is the sport of objectivity. Not a lot of judgment calls in tennis. It's either in or it's out. There's no judgment there. In baseball, you get a ball or a strike In basketball, is it a block or is it a charge? In soccer, is it a PK or was it a clean tackle? Judgment calls. You don't have judgment calls in tennis. That's a good thing. But punishing negligence sometimes has to be done. Sometimes you got to punish negligence. It can't always be about intent. It can't always be about interpretation and by the way if you left it open for interpretation the umpire would have to get into someone else's mind which is impossible right not to say there's not examples in other sports of umpires having to make that judgment call but if you can avoid it you should avoid it um novak could have hit that ball anywhere else anywhere else it could have gone three feet to the left it could have gone three feet to the right if it hit the lineswoman in the shin, I don't think he gets defaulted, but she had to leave the court and get medical attention. You're not going to get a point penalty for that. You're not going to get a point penalty for ball abuse when, when you hit a line judge and they have to leave the court to, to get, to get medical attention. Now she's fine, by the way, Novak apologized profusely. He seems very sorry. And he checked on, on her health afterwards, but what was done was done. And sometimes you have to punish negligence. I believe Novak was in a very cloudy state of mind. He was—he had—he had was clearly, you know, frustrated that he lost the triple break point, and that who knows how bad that shoulder is. Maybe he felt like his chances at the U.S. Open were were suddenly um, threatened already. I think his mind was very, very cloudy. Lost control. He was not mindful, and he hit a ball in a manner. That was really, really dangerous in terms of his prospects for the match. Because you don't hit a ball like that. You know where the lines people are. She wasn't moving. You know they're there. You know where you are on the court. You know where they stand. You know they're in the corner. When you hit a ball like that, there's a chance you might hit them. Novak was so cloudy, was so angry, and was in such a mental state that he actually broke his habit. And tennis players are creatures of habit. But check this out. When Novak holds serve or gets his serve broken before a change of ends, he generally just takes the ball out of his pocket and drops it. He normally doesn't even hit the ball back. I know a lot of players hit the ball back. I I tend to do that too. I hit it against the back fence. I don't play with ball kids or or lines people. And by the way, if Novak was not on Arthur Ashe or was not on uh, Louis Armstrong, it would have been Hawkeye live. No lines people. He would have been fine. But Novak hit a ball in a way that he normally wouldn't. He only did it because he was frustrated. He would normally just take the ball out of his pocket and drop it on the ground. That's what he normally does. That's his habit. He broke habit because he was frustrated. And doing that is an occupational hazard. If you um, if you hit the ball in the court, there's a slight chance you're going to hit someone and be defaulted. Slight chance. Slight chance. Occupational hazard. It's best to not do that. He knows that. Novak knows that. And he's going to pay the price. Um, and as as terrible as, as you feel for Novak, because he didn't mean to do it. As terrible as I felt for Shapovalov. As terrible as I felt for David Nalbandian. I felt really bad for all these guys who got defaulted. At the end of the day, the rule is the rule. And it was nobody but their fault. It's nobody's fault other than Novak. Do not blame the tournament referee. Maybe you could say it's not a good rule and you should be allowed. But I would like to hear that argument. Because I tried to work out that argument in my mind. I couldn't. I couldn't. You got to control yourself. It's not that hard in a... in a um in a clear state of mind, it's not that hard to not hit a ball person, to not hit a lines person, to not hit an umpire. Smash your racket. Smash your racket. Even then, occupational hazard. Because if it slips out of your hand and hits someone, guess what? You're defaulted. That's how the sport works. Occupational hazard. And I don't mean to make comparisons here, but I will anyway. Um, The best way to go about things is the way Rafael Nadal goes about things. Never seen him really abuse a ball. I've never seen him smash his racket. He um, he's really 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 good at controlling his temper, so he minimizes the occupational hazard. But Novak, he's more explosive. He's more emotional. He lost control in this instance and he hit a ball in a negligent manner and he got very unlucky and if any of these events if he did not slip on the court and he did not jam his shoulder if he converted one of his three set points at four or five or if there was hawkeye live or if he just got lucky and missed the ball woman or the, the lines woman if any of those things happened Djokovic would still be in the US Open in all likelihood assuming Pablo Corina Busta wouldn't have pulled off the upset none of those things happened we will move on um but that is that is my assessment so i guess to summarize um this will be something that the entire tennis world will and and Novak will move past eventually it will sting him for a while but he he will move past it the tennis world will move past it uh, the the correct call was made. There was a series of unfortunate events that led up to ultimately Novak hitting the lineswoman. But at the end of the day, uh, the rule is not an unfair rule. And Novak was not wronged in any way. Bad luck. He apologized. We'll move forward. Um, later on in the show, I'll tell you who I think is the new favorite to win the U.S. Open. But first... Mike McIntyre on the state of Canadian tennis and their incredible run here at the U.S. Open. We're joined for the first time by Mike McIntyre, co-host of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. Mike, these are, these are busy times for you, uh, so thanks for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: Not a problem. You know, I'm getting used to it the past few years and, and happy to get used to it as well, Gil.
0: So Denis Shapovalov is the first Canadian man in the quarterfinals of uh, the U.S. Open in the open era. And this is just this incredible breakout tournament for Canadian tennis. Did you have any kind of inkling before the tournament that that this could turn into this or is this how surprised to you by this?
1: It's hard to say, Ridley, really because, you know, there was such a long break in professional tennis. So what did any of us really expect when it came back to it? And and when things did get going, especially with that tournament last week, which was the the Cincinnati, quote-unquote, uh, draw that was held at the, uh, the same grounds, of course, it started off so well for us with Milos Raonic making it to the finals. And, you know, we had spoken with Milos on the podcast during the hiatus and knew how hard he was working and knew just how much potential he had if he was healthy which he was at the moment. So it was great to see him do, do so well. And yet here we are. He was actually the first Canadian to go out of the U.S. Open against uh, his buddy, Vashik Pospisil. So I can't say that we had an inkling this was going to happen. Although the past few years, obviously, we've been sort of taking as a, a tennis nation, an emerging tennis nation, gradual steps up the ladder. And uh, we kind of knew at some point we would have a breakthrough like this. And and obviously on the women's side, a year ago, we were celebrating our first Grand Slam singles uh, of uh, championship with Bianca Andreescu. So um, really happy to see that that next step is is coming so soon, and uh, and it continues with Dennis's uh, big win tonight, moving into the quarters as you said.
0: Yeah, well, we've all had our eyes on on Chapoval of an FAA, the youngsters in particular um, on the men's side. But Vashik Pospisil, I I got to put my hand up and apologize. I mean, he was not on my radar at all uh, before this tournament. And, I mean, career trajectory-wise, how would you sum up Pospisil and what the last couple of years um, has been? Because, I mean, for, I think for a lot of people, this, this really comes out of nowhere, and he's playing great right right now.
1: Yeah, he's had such an interesting career because um, he was overshadowed back in the day more by Milos Raonic, who had the, the big serve and and a bit of a you know the bigger weapon, I guess you could say, and had the, the bigger results early on. But you know we shouldn't take away from Vashtik either. He did make the Rogers Cup semifinals back in 2013, I want to say, where he faced uh, Milos in that All Canadian semi, which was a big deal for us at the time. He's a Wimbledon doubles um, champion as well with Jack Sock. And uh, and he did crack the top 25 in the world in in singles, which I have to be honest, at the time, many of us kind of felt he was uh, overachieving and would sort of settle into that maybe 40 to 50 range. Uh, And he never did really settle into that range. And I think a large part of that had to do with, you know, some injuries that he was carrying as well. He had that big surgery, um, you know, over a year ago now. And since he's come back from that, he's just been absolute fire and, and who would have thought? I mean, he started 2020 with a bang. He's got a win over Medvedev earlier this season. He made the finals in a tournament in France where he lost to Gael Mofis. And then again, after this big break, you think, well, probably that's cooled off. What are the chances he's going to pick right up where he left off? And the US Open is his first event back and he beats Milos, as I said. And then he takes out RBA, uh, Roberto Bautista-Agu. And uh, it's, it's just wonderful to see it happening because as you said, it is kind of unexpected. We thought Felix and Dennis were the two that, you know, the young guns that were coming along. And Vashik, who's, you know, it's amazing. I can't even believe he's 30 years old already, but having the best U.S. Open of, of his career. And, uh, and who's to say he can't keep uh, going further, too? He's the only one left who's over 30 years old in the men's draw, I believe, right now.
0: Yeah, he's actually the, the tournament leader in aces. I checked today. And he's above a guy like Berrettini, a guy like Zverev. Uh, so really impressive serving from Pospisil, getting him out of trouble. It, it just seems like every, uh, all the Canadians over the break improved. Um, let's go to Shapovalov. There's been a, a lot made of his, his mental game, now working with His His movement looks great. He's looking a little bit more patient. What stuck out about his game and the improvements that he's made?
1: I mean, his talent is undeniable, and we've known that for a few years now since he electrified the crowds in Montreal with that you know, epic win over Nadal three years ago. And uh, as you mentioned, I think it's the mental side of the game that he's needed to work on to minimize those frustrations, to not let that take over in a match, to find ways to stay positive. And he's taken a play out of uh, Bianca's book because she has employed uh, sports psychologists and visualization techniques and now Dennis, who's alluded to that this week as well, that his coach, Mikhail Eugenie, has said, uh, hey, why don't you try this? And Dennis has actually been talking to his psychologist or the, the one that he used during his professional career. And, uh, and Dennis said to me the other night when we spoke that he's already seen, um, you know early returns on that and that it's helped him out through his, uh, his few matches already this week. And, and clearly in that win over Taylor Fritz, where he came back from, from the dead, basically, um, it's it's so much the mental side of things he's got the flashy game he's super exciting to watch we know when he's on that he's got the top 10 potential uh, if he can yeah mature and and come into his own then uh, then I think that top 10 potential is something we're going to see much sooner rather than later
0: it really does look like that's happening right now uh, for Felix for the last year and a half it's really been the second serve and The double fault rate has been up there with with the tour leaders. And and right now that second serve looks a lot better. Have you noticed anything? Has Felix told you anything about about working on that second serve and the kick serve in particular?
1: No, Felix is pretty coy when it comes to, you know, what exactly he's been working on in, in practice and not reveal all the secrets. But when you look at him now, just physically speaking, compared to even earlier in 2020 and certainly a year ago, He's really kind of bulked up and and filled out. I mean, he was kind of a gangly teenager up until just recently. He turned 20 on August 8th, the same birthday as Roger Federer, of course. And he looks like a man out there now. And he looks physically fitter uh, than he ever has before. And so that's obviously, I think, going to translate into uh, more consistency on the court. In terms of the serving, which you could argue is as much mental as anything else, um, something that uh, no doubt we've all noticed is, is an area for improvement. Even Andy Murray, before their match the other day, uh, mentioned that he was hoping to exploit uh, Felix's serve. And that obviously uh, didn't come to be as Felix took care of him in straight sets. I mean, a tired-looking Andy Murray, of course, and and that's understandable. But Felix took care of business. And then his victory over Mute, my goodness. I mean, he couldn't have been more lethal uh, in that one, those first two sets in particular. So his confidence is high right now. And, uh, you know, when you're feeling confident, I don't know how much tennis you play, but that's that's like over half the battle. And so I think that's going to put to rest any of those service blips that he's been having. It is interesting to note that uh, one stat where Felix has been absolutely killing it this year is in pressure moments. And I can't tell you exactly how they measure that one, but he's just behind the guys like Djokovic and Nadal, Federer and Dominic Team, or at least he was before we picked right up a few weeks ago. So that says a lot about Felix too in those big moments that he's a guy that's going to deliver more often than than not.
0: That's really the key, for, in, in my eyes, for the rest of the tournament because with, with Novak out, no Grand Slam champions in the draw, there's, there's going to be a lot of pressure on some players who would probably expect to be an underdog in, in a major final against Djokovic, but there's not going to be a Novak-Djokovic on the other side to make them the underdog. I, I really think whoever handles the pressure, the added pressure, is, is going to really go far in this tournament.
1: Yeah, well said. And I don't know about you, but I'm still coming to terms with what happened earlier today as we record this with Novak Djokovic and just the implications, because they're so, you know, wide reaching, not only the implications for Novak who uh, has missed a, a wonderful opportunity to get closer to Nadal and Federer. I mean, wouldn't this be, I mean, awful for him and his fans, if this was a, was something that prevented him from being able to to get there when all is said and done. And I don't think it will be, but uh, Obviously, there's implications for him. And, and now on the other side of things, the implications for the uh, 12 or so guys at, at recording time here who are left in the draw, what an opportunity. I mean, you'd be lying. Any of those guys would be lying if they said, oh, you know, this doesn't impact me or this doesn't enter into my... Come on, you're going to sleep tonight and you're thinking, why not me? I've got as much chance as anyone else left in this draw. And that includes uh, my Canadian guys, uh, Vashik, Felix and and Dennis, of course.
0: And Dennis gets to play Pablo Caranobusta. Instead of Novak, so um, that that's an interesting test for him. Uh, how do how do you see uh, the FAA team matchup?
1: Yeah, I mean that's going to be a, a big one. That's one that we were looking at. Uh, I mean here in Canada, anyways, as we saw the draw when it initially came out. And in terms of guys that are probably now the front one, runner, you've got to consider Dominic Team, maybe along with Daniil Medvedev, right up there because Team has has been to Grand Slam finals before. And not just on clay. He's done it, obviously, uh, earlier this year at the Aussie Open. He's won a big Masters 1,000 on hard courts. Um, So I I say you've got to put him at the top. Uh, On the flip side, if you're looking for any potential holes there, it's the fact he's played a lot of tennis, which is a weird thing to say during a pandemic when there haven't been regular tournaments. But as per usual, he's found a way to put himself out there on court a ton, even just in exhibition matches and tournaments. So uh, perhaps that's something that can... uh, work to Felix's advantage and uh I've got to be honest I don't have the head-to-head stats in front of me because today's been a bit of a whirlwind but I think all bets are really off and and it's uh it's such a new new moment right now given all the the interesting things that are happening behind the scenes the uh the uniqueness of this tournament and the setting and uh and I think it's uh I'd I'd almost say 50-50 despite the fact that team has more experience I think Felix right now is uh is is something that um that that we can count on to put up a a really good battle here.
0: Yeah. I think the court conditions help FAA as well. It would be a different story on some of the slower courts on tour.
1: Oh, his forehand is just looking absolutely dead. Like I can't believe how fast that's coming off his, his racket.
0: And he takes it early. See team hits it just as big as Felix, but Felix takes it so much earlier. And I think that that makes it maybe even more potent um, offensively, maybe team has a little bit more uh, heaviness. Anyway, I picked the wrong Canadian at the semi. I picked Milos to to the semifinal. I I picked the wrong one. I don't
1: know. Yeah, well, the, you know, the funny thing is, like Ben Lewis, my co-host at Matchpoint Canada, and I, we were also feeling pretty high on on Milos, and that was even before the result in Cincinnati and just knowing what he's capable of when he is healthy and how usually he gets to the U.S. Open and he's he's tired and his body is worn down, so it's not optimal for him. But uh, we had him as our our pick two. Although he did have a tough draw, but we were looking more ahead to the uh, Karen Hatchinov and Alex Dimenowers of the world rather than than his good buddy and uh, and fellow Canadian Vashik Pospisil. So, you know, kudos to Vashik because he uh, kind of surprised all of us. And uh, and we couldn't be happier for him because, you know, not only is he a, a real leader off the court in what he's doing with the PTPA, whether you agree with that or not, his heart is in the right place. He's just a genuine all around nice guy. And, and one of the, yeah, the most genuine people I've interviewed and talked to in my time covering the sports. So it's uh, you can't help but be happy for someone who seems to be hitting their stride at this, uh, this stage of the career.
0: And he drinks maple syrup on, on changeovers. <laughs> That's a bonus, right?
1: I don't have any handy right now, but given the way today is going, I could use some myself. Yeah. So. <laughs> all
0: right, Mike, I'll let you go. Uh, you got to get to Dennis's uh, presser, but uh, this was a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hey, anytime, hopefully, there's there's some future Canadian moments in, in the near future, and I'd be happy to come chat with you again, man.
0: All right, that was Mike McIntyre, co-host of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, and he he's really got a good relationship with all the Canadian players, speaks to them frequently, so I wanted to get his perspective on, on all the Canadian success in this tournament, and, and he was great. So glad we were able to have that conversation. As I, as I told Mike, I think nerve management is going to be huge now that Novak's gone. Um, a lot of these guys are going to be feeling a lot of pressure, like it's their chance. And I think most of that pressure falls on Dominic Team, who's older than the rest of them. Uh, Pospisil is the only player above, above 30, as Mike pointed out. But Team is older than really the rest of the contenders in this draw. And for that reason, and because he's been close so many times, I really do think that this that, that he's gonna be feeling a ton of pressure. And I'm kind of worried about that because that's not a role he's used to playing. And generally, that takes him getting used to. Being the favorite, being the one that people expect to win, that takes that takes some time to get used to. You don't just suddenly pick that up and 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 you're good. Normally that's an adjustment. So that concerns me about team. Ultimately, I think. Um, the bottom half of the draw is where the winner will come from. The top half of the draw is an easier path for someone like Alexander Zverev, who now I think will probably come out of the top half of the draw. He's now my pick to make the final, which blows my mind. I never thought I'd be picking Alexander Zverev to make the U.S. Open final. I I really didn't think that that was in the cards, to be honest with you. Uh, But apparently it, it is. So I have Zverev in the final out of the top half but I really think the champion comes from the bottom half. Um, I'm extremely high on Andre Rublev, of course. I am high on the way FAA is playing, although I don't really think he can muster the consistency match after match after match to get it done. Um, I am... And I I do believe that Berrettini remains remains underrated as as a contender. (laughs) You know, I mean, it would be... He would be kind of the... The 2020 choice to win the U.S. Open, like who would win in 2020? Like Berrettini would win in 2020. Come on, the the way this year is going, Matteo would win, just because he's the one no one's talking about. Um, but he's the number six seed for a reason. Ultimately, Medvedev is the favorite here. He's my favorite at least. I I like the way he matches up with Dominic Team. I think he'd um I think he'd have a a really good chance if he if he met up with Dominic Team. If Team gets through. Dangerous FAA in the next round. Um, I, I do like Medvedev. Medvedev also has probably one of the easiest round four matchups in the bottom half. That that doesn't help. Uh, or that doesn't hurt, rather. Francis can do some things to bother Medvedev. Um, I think Francis takes a set, perhaps. Maybe a set. I, I do think he takes a set. Uh, but Medvedev wins that in four. And I think Daniil's the favorite. I think he's playing the best tennis right now. And there's no one... Who I who I really think um, matches up is a, is a really big problem for him matchups wise. And then I would say the last thing is I I really do trust his head. I've I've not seen Medvedev shrink in a big moment. He has the consistency. He's got he plays with a little bit more um, consistency and and margin and. He he plays within himself a little bit better than some of the other players. Take a Felix. Take a Dominic team. If they're really starting to feel the pressure, they can overhit. They can overplay. I know Medvedev won't. And Zverev with the second serve. I I certainly trust Medvedev more than Alexander Zverev in a big match. So Medvedev's my new pick to win the U.S. Open. Shocking development with, uh, with Novak Djokovic. Shocking. And... This uh, this really kind of fascinating and tumultuous year for Novak continues. It's it's such a juxtaposition. He's done so many great and amazing things, and he's also had so many difficulties and unfortunate events um, in in 2020. So it's it's interesting. So we'll continue to follow it. Uh, U.S. Open coverage will continue. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Gil Gross is the handle, uh, and leave a, a rating and review of Monday Match Analysis on Apple Podcasts. That's much appreciated. Make sure you're following. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Don't forget to, or hope you enjoyed, and I will see you next time.